The History of Harun al-Rashid from the Belfast Monthly Magazine This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Harun al-Rashid The name of Harun al-Rashid is so familiar to most readers that a compilation purporting to relate the principal events of his life might seem at first to require an apology. On perusal, however, it will be found that the Harun al-Rashid of history differs much from the facetious night-wanderer of oriental romance, and that most of what is detailed of him by the historians of his reign will present him in a point of view essentially different from that in which we are accustomed to behold him. If we choose to moralize on the matter, we may reflect on the falsehood of those names, too frequently bestowed on kings, which may have flattered their own blind vanity, but have afterwards accompanied their character downwards through time, with all the damning effect of sneering irony. For al-Rashid, or the just, seems to have been little deserved by this prince, who appears to have acted, in most instances, with the unfeeling caprice of a despot, and not with the mature deliberation of one who strove to award to all their due. In the year of the Hegira, 100, which answers to 718 of our era, Mohammed, great-grandson of Abbas, the uncle of the impostor Mohammed, laid claim to the caliphate, then in the possession of Omar II. His attempt succeeded, and he became the founder of the Abbasite race, which maintained their sway through a series of thirty-seven caliphs and a period of nearly five hundred years. Harun al-Rashid was the fifth caliph of this race, and succeeded his brother Hadi according to the appointment of their father Mahadi. This appointment seems to have been unpleasing to Hadi, who acted on every occasion toward Harun, so as to testify his displeasure, in some instances displayed great meanness of disposition. Mahadi had left to Harun as a pledge of the succession to which he had appointed him in the event of his brother's death, a remarkably handsome ruby set in a ring. This the caliph wished much to get from Harun, and sent a eunuch to demand it of him. Harun was walking on the bank of the Tigris when the messenger came. The demand enraged him. He reproached his brother with injustice, in seeking to wrest from him the only thing of value which remained to him out of his father's possession, while he himself was in possession of such extensive territories and such vast treasures. He then pulled off the ring and threw it into the river. Harun, after his accession to the caliphate, bethought himself of the ring and sent some divers to search where he had thrown it in. The attempt was successful, for the first thing the divers met with was the ring, and this was regarded as a presage of good fortune in his ensuing reign. Hadi did not confine himself to those petty mortifications of his brother. He endeavoured to set aside his father's appointment relative to Harun and substitute his own son, Jafar. But death put an end to all his plans, about five months after the transaction of the ring. 
After his death, Jafar made some efforts to obtain the power, but the party of Harun proved so formidable that he thought it advisable to yield his pretensions with the best grace he could, and Harun quietly ascended the throne in the year of the Hegira, 170. While in a private station and exposed to danger as well as mortifications from his brother, Harun had vowed a pilgrimage to Mecca in case he should be delivered from his difficulties. After he had obtained the supreme power, he consulted with his courtiers on the propriety of adhering to his vow. They unanimously declared it not binding on him. The doctors of their law being consulted were as unanimous in maintaining the opposite opinion. He bowed to the decision of the latter and set out on foot from Baghdad in the year of the Hegira, 179. Particular attention was paid to the accommodation of the noble pilgrim, and it is said that the roads were strewn with tapestry and the most valuable stuffs. A person attended as he was, and protected from all difficulties and distresses of the journey, can scarcely be said to have travelled as a pilgrim, and in fact his pilgrimage is unmarked by a single incident or circumstance worth notice, if we accept his meeting with Ben Adham, whose character and performances as a pilgrim form a singular contrast to those of Harun. From his earliest youth he had devoted himself to religious pursuits, and at the proper age enrolled himself among the Sophies, or religious, under the direction of Thothail at Mecca. He undertook to perform his pilgrimage thither, under a vow of passing the desert alone, and without any store of provisions, making a thousand genuflections at the end of every mile. This journey, it is said, occupied him twelve years, during which time, the Arab historians say, he was often tempted by evil spirits. The caliph, on their meeting, saluted him and asked how he did. Adham's reply was an Arabic quotation to the following effect, quote, With worldly rags we eke religion's garb, vain toil which only to destroy it tends, happy whose master is the almighty God, whose worldly mammon makes him heavenly friends. End quote. Mecca, whither the caliph was proceeding, is situated in the midst of an extensive stony plain, which is bounded at the distance of about three miles by some mountains in which a grotto named from Eve attracts the reverence of the Mussulman. There is another mountain to the south of it, where Mohammed hid himself when he had been driven out of Mecca and had resolved on fixing himself at Medina, whence came the era of the Hegira, or flight, dated from this time. All Mussulmen are bound to visit this city once in their lives, either in person or by proxy, and the principal objects of their reverence are the Kaaba, or square buildings supposed to have been built by Abraham, the Zenazem, or the well shown by the angel to Hagar in the wilderness, and the black stone. The caliph, in due order, approached the Kaaba on his knees, kissed the threshold under which was buried a fragment of the revered black stone, drank abundantly of the Zenazem, which imparts wisdom, wit, valor, and every desirable qualification to those who drank plentifully, 
and most reverently kissed a thousand times the wondrous stone which has the quality of swimming in water, though sometimes it is so heavy as to be immovable by the united force of men and beasts. It was the last caliph who performed these holy rites. Harun, before his departure, had taken the illustrious family of the Barmecides under his patronage. Abu Ali Jahia, who had been his preceptor, was endowed with every civil and military qualification. His four sons were equally conspicuous for virtues and talents. Jahia, the father, was appointed vizier, and Jafar, who appears to have been the eldest son, was chosen to the confidential post of instructor and governor of the young caliph Almamon, the second son of Harun, whom, in a manner similar to that in which himself had been appointed by his father Mahadi, he ordered to be recognized as eventual successor of his eldest son, Muhammad, afterwards named Al-Amin. The Grecian Empire, which was about this time under the sway of the Empress Irene, was tributary to the Caliphate. But Irene, having been dethroned, her successor, Nicephorus, thought it unbecoming his dignity to pay this tribute, or perhaps conceived that the refusal to pay it would procure popularity for him among his subjects, or still more probably, moved thereto by unprincipled folly. His method of declaring his intentions displayed braggart insolence. He sent a positive refusal of the tribute, in place of which he presented, by ambassadors sent for the purpose, some swords. Harun cut them in two with his own sword in their presence with the greatest ease, thus showing how little he regarded this covered declaration of war, and without awaiting an open avowal of what was plainly intended, he flew like an eagle to the gates of Constantinople and took the city of Heraclea. Not content with this, he assaulted the empire in various parts until he compelled Nicephorus to sue in the most abject terms for a peace, which he forced him to purchase at a very dear rate. He turned his arms against Egypt, which he subdued. He was induced to this from an abhorrence of the pride and blasphemy of the king of Egypt, who commanded his subjects to look on him as their master and their god. In contrast to this, Harun resolved on appointing the meanest of his slaves as governor of that country. He chose for this purpose one Hazaib, an Ethiopian, in proof of whose ignorance and stupidity the following anecdote is related. The Egyptians complained to him of a heavy loss they had suffered in their cotton, which had been usually sown on the banks of the Nile, and at this time had been carried away by an unexpected flood. Well, said he, why did you not sow wool? Most of the transactions of this prince, whether foreign or domestic, beneficent or vindictive, mark the impetuosity, precipitancy, and caprice observable in the conduct of almost all who have been cursed with the gift of despotic power. His wars were begun on slight provocations, entered on with haste, and brought to a precipitate conclusion. His benefits were given profusely. Good sense was often seen to guide his conduct and answers, while at other times he seems the sport of the most infernal passions. Of prudence the following is an instance. His son, Amin, 
demanded the punishment of a man who had spoken disrespectfully of his mother. The caliph, having weighed the matter, replied, My son, I advise you to pardon the man. This would be the action, as it is the duty of a great prince. But if you cannot repress your desire of revenge, do you say as much evil of his mother as he has of yours? But this period of his reign is indelibly disgraced by an act of the most capricious cruelty, an act in which no limits were set to his rage. But the innocent and the guilty alike involved in destruction stand recorded in history as an instance of the effects of despotic power in aggravating the evil dispositions of man, an offence of the most venial kind, if indeed it could be called an offence, was committed, and this, which should have been pardoned, was visited with the most dreadful punishment extended even to those who knew not of the offence. And what brings al-Rashid under heavier condemnation is that his repentance is nowhere recorded. The transaction shall speak of itself, and perhaps will set forth the injustice and cruelty of the caliph more strongly than any comment however forcible. Jafar, one of the four sons of Jehia ben Barmak, was the chief favorite of Harun. He was raised by him to the dignity of vizier, and not only possessed the influence consequent of the post, but was able to resign the post in favor of one of his brothers and still maintain his influence with the caliph. Of his power there is a striking proof in the following occurrence. Abdal Malek Hashemi was a near relation to the caliph, but not in the enjoyment of his favor. He applied to Jafar, lamenting his loss of the caliph's favor, that he was deeply in debt to some who were pressing him for a payment he was unable to make, and that his son, now grown up, had no employment about the court. Jafar, having heard his complaints, assured him that the caliph should thenceforward behold him with favor, pay his debts, and give his daughter in marriage to Abdal Malek's son, with the government of Egypt as her dowry. One who heard these promises thought them so far beyond his power, great as it was known to be, as to suppose he had heated himself with wine, and that when he cooled they would be forgotten. But to the surprise of all, on the following day, Harun publicly declared that he would punctually perform everything that had been promised in his name. Nor was this more than was due to Jafar, for his past faithful and zealous services as a minister. Although his merits in this way seem to have been comparatively small when compared with the exercise of his superior understanding and penetration in cases requiring the greatest promptitude and presence of mind. An instance of this is on record, which at once displays the strange inconsistency of Harun, the despotism of his power, and Jafar's presence of mind. A Jewish astrologer had predicted that Harun should die in the following year. Jafar found the prince in deep melancholy on having heard the prediction, and having sent for the Jew immediately, he asked him what he thought as to the length of his own life. The Jew replied that his horoscope portended a long life. Jafar advised the caliph to order the immediate execution of the Jew. The order was promptly performed, 
and the caliph restored to peace of mind. The many great services performed by Jafar for the caliph should have commanded some return, but the relief this last must have brought to his mind, when laboring under the pain of fear and dejection, we might expect to find repaid in the most grateful manner, and a lively affection to take possession of the caliph's heart so as to exclude every unkind thought. Far different was the return. Jafar, together with his other qualifications, possessed in an eminent degree the graces of conversation. Harun had the refined taste that can prize and enjoy those graces. He, of course, devoted much of his leisure to this enjoyment. His favorite sister was Abassa, whose society he was desirous of enjoying at the same time. But the customs of the Persians, enjoining the strictest retirement on the females and making them inaccessible to any males except their nearest relations, made this impracticable. To gratify two wishes equally strong, he resolved on giving his sister in marriage to Jafar, that so he might without interruption enjoy the society of both. In the true spirit, however, of one who consults his own gratification only, he subjected their union to the painful condition of their strictly abstaining from every intercourse except what might take place in his presence. Jafar and Abassa were both beautiful and young. Ardent and mutual love was the necessary consequence of free intercourse between them, and love triumphed over their prudence and broke through the painful condition. Abassa became a mother but the child was conveyed away so secretly that Harun was ignorant of the whole transaction, till informed by a perfidious slave. Harun made the necessary inquiries, and when he was fully informed, he resolved on destroying Jafar, and not content with that, he resolved to destroy his family and relations, numerous as they were. The Arabian historian of the Barmecides, according to the superstition of even the learned among the people, relates that Jafar, designing a little before he was surprised by death to visit the caliph, consulted his ephemerides for a favorable time. He was then in his own house, which was situated on the banks of the Tigris, and while he was engaged in calculation, a man, who did not see him, passing by in a boat, recited some Arabic verses to the following purpose. Man seeks to stars for guidance on his way, their rule is God, whose will must ever sway. Jafar, on hearing these words, threw his ephemerides and astrolabe to the ground and mounted his horse to go to the palace, where he was shortly after put to death. In considering this dismal tragedy, we shall search in vain for any extenuating circumstance. Harun was acquainted with the birth of Jafar's child before he set out on his pilgrimage, and on his arrival at Mecca, whither he was informed it had been conveyed, he searched for it, but fortunately in vain, as it had been sent away into Remen. Footnote or Arabia Felix The account given by Abu Faraj of this whole transaction, as well as many other particulars of the caliph's conduct, differs from what is related above. He says Jafar had twins by Abasa, that Harun had Abasa thrown alive into a well, and when he sent for and had looked at the twins, 
he burst into tears and ordered them also to be thrown into the well, which was then stopped up. End of footnote. On his return from pilgrimage, he went to Anbar, whether Jafar accompanied him and immediately on his arrival, dispatched a messenger secretly to Baghdad with orders to have the Burmesides, Jahia, the father of Jafar, and his three sons thrown into prison. This order was executed without the knowledge of Jafar, on whom Harun, in the meantime, lavished more than ordinary caresses. At last, on the first day of the month, Sefer, in the year 187 of the Hegira, Harun commanded one of his officers, named Jasser, to bring him the head of Jafar. The officer entered Jafar's house and in a rude manner signified to him the caliph's orders. Return, said Jafar, without showing any emotion. Perhaps Harun has given his order while heated with wine. Tell him you have executed his command. If he repent, I shall save my life. If not, my head is always ready. Jasser, not being quite content with this expedient, Jafar went with him to the door of the caliph's apartment and said to him, Go in and tell him you have brought my head, but have left it outside. Jasser did so, but as soon as he had said so, the caliph ordered him to bring the head quickly into his presence. On this the officer went out and cut off the head of Jafar, which he threw at the feet of the caliph. This bloody scene was no sooner finished than he ordered Jasser to call certain persons whom he named. Jasser obeyed. When they entered, Harun said to them, Cut off that man's head, for I cannot bear the murder of Jafar in my presence. Thus perished by the most capricious cruelty a man who was the ornament and idol of his age. Of his generosity there is a pleasing trait on record. A person presented to him for sale a female slave, whom Jafar found so attractive that he gave at once the price demanded for her, which was forty thousand crowns. The girl seemed to feel much anguish, and in a voice expressive of the agony she suffered, Do you not, said she to the person who was selling her, do you not remember the promise you so often made that you would never sell me? Jafar instantly, on hearing this pathetic appeal, said to the seller, Bring me evidence that this girl is free, and that you have married her, and I shall bestow on you the money I have now given you. The memory of the family thus cruelly cut off was dear to the people, and the conviction of this urged Torun to the puerile revenge of making it death for any person to mention them in any manner whatsoever. One person, an old man named Mondir, was found courageous enough to despise this threat, and was in the habit of taking his station daily on a small eminence before one of the ruined houses of the family. There, as from a rostrum, he entertained the passengers with details of the worthy actions of these nobles, and formally delivered their panegyric. The caliph, on information of this boldness, ordered the man to be brought before him and sentenced him to death. Moadir, 
received his sentence with apparent satisfaction and only begged the favor of being permitted to speak two words before his execution. The favor was granted to him, but the two words extended into a long discourse in which he extolled the obligations he owed to the Barmecides with such force of eloquence that the caliph, who had heard him at first with impatience, was moved and not only gave him his life, but presented him with a gold plate from his table. Mondir, on receiving this valuable gift, bowed himself to the ground before the caliph according to custom, saying, however, here is an additional favor I owe the Bermisides. Before this time, Harun had declared his eldest son, Muhammad al-Amin, his successor, and now he appointed his second son, al-Mamon, successor to him. In 192 of the Hegira, he was at Raqqa in Mesopotamia, where he was employed in preparing to suppress a rebellion that had been excited in that neighborhood. Here he was very much alarmed by a dream in which he thought he saw a hand which held above his head a handful of red earth and at the same time that he heard the voice of someone distinctly pronounce the following words, This is the earth in which Harun shall be buried. That he thereupon asked where the burial place should be, and that the same voice answered, At Tooth. Harun awoke very much terrified by this dream, and fell into profound melancholy. His physician, Gabriel, a Christian by profession, perceived it and asked the cause. The caliph recounted to him the substance of the dream. The physician told him what is usual in such cases. The dreams are but fancies produced by the fumes which the humors of the body sent to the brain, that there was no necessity for distressing his mind, and that the anxiety occasioned by the preparations he was making to suppress the rebellion contributed to this fancy, and he prescribed diversions as the best means for dissipating this uneasiness. The caliph, in compliance with this advice, ordered a magnificent festival which was continued for some days, and thus got rid of his melancholy. At the conclusion of the festival, he put himself at the head of his army, and had arrived in the province of Georgian, when he was attacked by a sickness which at first seemed trifling. As the country of Georgian was somewhat troubled, he resolved to pass to the province of Khorasan, that he might enjoy the repose his situation required. When he arrived at a place called Tus, feeling his malady increase, he sent for Gabriel, and reminded him of what he had told him at Raqqa. Well, continued he, we are now at the twos where I shall be interred. Send one of my eunuchs to look for a handful of the earth from some place round the town. His confidential eunuch, Mesrur, went for some and presented it, red as it was with his arm half-stripped. Harun no sooner saw it than he exclaimed, There is the earth, and there is the very arm I saw in my dream. Terror seized his mind immediately, and he expired three days after. Thus died a man, through fear of death, which he had often confronted in the field, during a life checkered with inconsistencies, 
He was deeply versed in learning and the sciences, yet absurdly addicted to judicial astrology. He cultivated his mind and was the patron of learned men, yet was ferocious and tyrannical. He selected men of learning for his advisers in their respective departments and even prescribed to them with judgment the manner in which they should propose their advice. As to Asmai, a celebrated doctor of the law, he said, Do not instruct me in public, nor be too pressing with your advice in private. In general, wait for my asking it, and be satisfied with a brief, precise answer to my questions. Beware of attempting to obtain any influence over me with the view of acquiring authority, etc. Yet his conduct proves his wisdom to have been merely the wisdom of words, too light to resist the tempest of his passions, and, while his showy qualification have given a semblance of foundation for his panegyrists, those who look beyond the surface of things will stamp his conduct with decided reprobation. End of the History of Harun al-Rashid